The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Welcome to the show. Today, I'd just like to reiterate uh, my mission statement, which is that when you watch this show, you'll get the absolute best honest attempt to tell the truth about the world as it is today. You can take that statement to the bank. We're living in a world of uh, complex complexities where people, uh, bad actors, create information and narratives that are kind of cognitive warfare. And my background is in science, where often you have conflicting pieces of evidence provided by the physical world and your inadequate instrumentation. And your job is to find a hypothesis that accounts for all the evidence and then discard the, the faulty evidence. But the problem is there's always evidence pointing in different directions, and sometimes it has a natural explanation or it's to do with your measuring instruments. But finally, you get there, and that's how science has progressed. For hundreds of years, and that's why we're sitting in studios and doing worldwide broadcasts. Investigative journalism, honest investigative journalism, is no different. You get different pieces of evidence, anomalies, and different stories. And it's made harder by the fact that you've got people trying to obscure the truth, whereas molecules and scientific data and insects don't conceal the truth. They just are. So that's why, and you've got very skilled people with very big secrets to hide. And they've latched on, they have these all-purpose uh, narrative put down, which is that you're engaging in conspiracy theory. But while there are people who are have extravagant, fantastical ideas about the world and uh, make money on clicks on the basis of things that are not simply true, there are also things that are called conspiracy theory, but that are not conspiracy theories, but they're just called that to lump you with uh, bad actors or, or, or the people who are not serious, but this tries its best to be serious. Today, we're going to talk about, um, our main interview is going to talk about cultural issues in Ireland. And um, it, this is on the eve of the return to power of devolved power in Stormont, which is the uh, political headquarters in Belfast in Northern Ireland. We've this is uh, probably due to a rapprochement between uh, the British government and Brussels. We've been at loggerheads for years. Uh, it means that the uh, Ireland will retain, Northern Ireland will retain its trading links with the rest of Britain. At the same time, it has an open border with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and I think it's probably due to the, the British and, and, and the Europeans having some kind of detente because of the united position on the conflict with Russia. Um, Ireland's a funny old place, and it will relate to our conversation with our main interview, because it's a place where intensely divided communities living in the uh, suburbs in Belfast, the British Protestant ones with their British flags bedecking the whole street, and the Catholic ones with their murals and their memories of the freedom struggle against the British. And I understand it's still quite tense there. And yet... The Sinn Féin, are going, which is the Nationalist Party, are trying to join up with the United Ireland, the rest of Ireland, which will open the borders and open up their enclaves, as it were, to a country which is seeing unprecedented amounts of immigration from the rest of the world. So how is that going to go? Where, if they can't get on with their Protestant neighbours, how are they going to get on with people from Somalia? These are all very complex questions, but they're all very relevant in a increasingly mobile and diverse world, and we will not hesitate to tackle the issues. So we'll do that in 10 minutes, but first I'd like to introduce my new news producer and we'll run do an analysis and rundown of the day's news. This is Basil Valentine. Thank you, this is TNT. The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies, we need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right, Basil is uh, with us just a second. He is going to t give us a news analysis of the day's main stories and some depth, and we'll talk about that for a few minutes. Um, Basil, do tell us. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. you. Good to be with you. You are a newsmeister, and you are an expert on catching absolutely up to the bang, up to the second, up-to-date news hot off the international presses. What have you got for us today? That's right, off the off the wires as we used to call it but now uh, 
if you want the latest you have to go to social media you won't get it from corporate media but no, speaking indeed. of social media uh mm. elon musk has been in the news over the last couple of days for a couple of reasons um first of all uh, in a landmark ruling chancellor kathleen st jude mccormick has mm -hmm. decreed that a landmark compensation package awarded by tesla's board of directors worth more than 55 billion dollars to musk uh, is invalid and he can't have it so there's no 55 billion dollars for musk not immediately anyway this was agreed five years ago and uh, the uh, attorneys for the plaintiffs claimed that it was not fairly negotiated it was the product of sham negotiations with directors of tesla who were not independent of him and approved by shareholders who were given misleading and incomplete disclosures in a proxy statement so no 55 billion dollar cash payout surely one of the biggest income packages in the history of the planet i mean wow i could do that yeah anyway 55 so billion. but musk has had a brain chip implanted of course with his new Neuralink technology um that sounds incredible yeah i mean the 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 way they're selling it to the general public is that this will help people of limited physical movement uh it's a neurostimulation device a brain computer interface device designed to restore movement after paralysis and we welcome right. the opportunity to do the same with the Neuralink device quite why musk need ones needs one i'm not sure i'm not aware of mm. the fact that he's uh, physically incapacitated in any way shape or form but uh, he likes to uh, be a pioneer with his own products doesn't he so uh, he's had a chip implanted so how far have they got with this i mean are there any demonstrations have we got any stephen hawking types out there who can walk again uh not yet it's still early days it's apparently it's five years since the first one uh was implanted in a paraplegic but uh the device is going to be used to help read a paraplegic person's intent to move to help wow. the person sense an object so they could right. for example pick up a can of soda without crushing it and bring it to their mouth and take a sip more easily so mm. i mean this sounds great of well, course but the, go on i mean the, the the evil cynic in me says yes that's what they say it's to help paraplegics but it could turn all our soldiers into cyborgs or or sort of they could move drones around or they could throw things at uh, their enemies and, and god knows what well the imagination is the limit there i guess well this is it people feared that if it's all connected mm. up to the giant ai computer in the mm. sky uh it will be able to put thoughts in our heads or restrict right. other thoughts that it's mm. you know ultimately the you know end game is mind control uh right. and uh the dissent and freedom of thought and all the rest of it that we champion on this platform would become a thing of the past because we would all be drones and semi-androids mm with chips in our head telling us what to think and do musk wants to call this new technology telepathy that's right. the sort of that's the, the moment the brand name is neurally but he wants to call it telepathy but telepathy is a perfectly sort of natural some people regard it as a, a branch of parapsychology it's when you are able to communicate with somebody without words there have been lots of demonstrations of telepathy between twins for example that uh that, you know that uh, are separated and uh, yet they have the same thoughts and intentions at the same time so telepathy is real um right and hijacking the term for these brain implants uh, right. strikes me as rather sinister really right and so mind control well are you, are you sure they musk hasn't been trialing it on mainstream media journalists for five years already <laughs> well that's a very good point yeah um and point. um that's i think that uh, it's incredibly important what can we do to keep an eye on this i mean is it outlets like ours that ask questions um 
are you optimistic that we can uh, keep whatever the demo exercise our democratic right to know or something or should technology yeah, well, be allowed it, it to do their own thing absolutely i mean it comes back ultimately to the bodily sovereignty issue which was highlighted during the covid farrago um that all of us being of sound mind uh should you know be required to consent to any kind of invasive procedure and be fully entitled as arguably the single most important human right we've got to refuse any kind of medical procedure uh, interface brain chip whatever um right so uh, that i mean that's the key thing they're saying that these deep brain stimulators have long treated conditions like parkinson's disease epilepsy and essential tremors providing specific right. stimulation so I, right. I think there is a, a remedial role for them of course uh, yeah you know if you've got you know we, we should sort of embrace the technology from the point of view of yeah. of helping uh, people with serious chronic conditions and the disabled but a line has to be drawn between mm. that and any kind of sort of routine implanting of people um you okay. know, the fear of well, course is that you get a chip in the brain uh soon after birth along with the vaccinations or something and right. this it may seem benign at first though this is designed mm. to enhance but in fact yeah. uh, it has you know other sinister implications yeah, yeah, because of it's always uh, you know the, as they say the stepping stones approach it starts with something seemingly benign and then That's bit right. by bit gradually a, you know a darker agenda is revealed uh, and it also shows us that we can't really we, we talk, I, I mean my field isn't so much technology as politics and geopolitics and international affairs we don't know to what extent these technological discoveries will come and, and completely subvert our lives in the next 10 years or five years i mean who predicted smartphones in around 2010 yet we're now all glued to smartphones so i'm Absolutely. glad you keep an eye on that for us just give us a rundown of this uh, rather tense situation in the middle east uh, you you have the absolutely up-to-date headlines on that tell us a little bit about that well the prospects for a truce are better now than they have been at any time over the last six weeks that doesn't mean to say i would go so far as to say that they're good but uh, the hamas chief ismail haniye is going to cairo today to discuss a ceasefire proposal put forward by the paris conference Paris conference involved intelligence chiefs from Israel, the United States and Egypt, together with the Prime Minister of Qatar and uh, Haniye and other Hamas officials are traveling to Egypt to discuss it on their side. The Israelis say that uh, any truce can only be uh, a suspension of hostilities and Hamas are looking for a permanent cessation of hostilities so well as long as the shooting stops i mean i i think you can take it from there maybe i would i I'm, i don't well that's right i mean it did stop for a week in november didn't it it stopped for a yeah, week exactly. and then resumed again worse than yeah. ever you know i mean we we yeah, need yeah. to keep we hope it stops as soon as possible because uh, we need to bear in mind the catastrophic humanitarian mm. situation on the ground in gaza uh mm, thousands sure. of orphan children many of them amputees uh the entire population on the brink of starvation and on top of that of course on the basis of unfounded allegations uh a number of western countries have cut funding to the united nations works and relief yeah. agency although gutierrez the secretary general held a top level meeting last night in new york to try and persuade the uh, uh dissenting countries to restore their funding for UNRWA. So that may happen. Uh, Basil, before we head into the next segment, that's a good rundown. I mean, it actually sounds quite optimistic. Um, we can always hope. I, I prefer to be optimistic. We have to be, we have to be always yeah. optimistic, Pelle. Optimism I, I don't choice. follow it nearly as closely as you do. So the last time I had my eye on, on the Middle East conflict was this, uh, uh, the killing of three Americans in Jordan stroke Syria. And we, every, yes. a lot of people thought there was going to be an escalation when Lindsey Graham said hit Iran and, and things like that. Yes. But that seems to have quietened down a little bit. Um, well, what, only what... temporarily. Uh, Biden says he has decided how to retaliate, but we right. don't know what that is yet. But and the Iranians were there. Well, we hope he's just so. trying to keep I mean, the I, you know, back. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Iranians have said that if there is a strike on Isra Iranian soil anywhere, then the consequences will be dire for the entire region. So it's a very, wow. very tense moment on that on that point. I mean, the the Americans, of course, accuse the groups that attack the U.S. bases in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq of always this Iran-backed militia, Iran-backed, Iran-backed. Yeah, yeah. And right. they, they are allies of Iran, but they don't necessarily receive material help from Iran. Well, it's like saying we attack America just because the uh, Ukrainian army is U.S. backed, you know, so you, there you take go. logic. To, yeah, exactly. OK, well, <clears throat> Basil, we'd love to have you on uh, tomorrow and uh, subsequent days for this really up to date uh, account of what's going on in the world. And uh, see you tomorrow, Basil. This is TNT My Radio. My pleasure, Pelly. TNT's Kate Shamarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally 100 percent heal itself. If you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs, what do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special, special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just going to serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee, fluoridated, fluoridated, bromine, water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shamarani on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. One reason people tune in to TNT Radio is often because they're loyal to a specific show or personality. Our personalities have been a part of people's daily routine, and people continue to tune in. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page, and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state. Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. So welcome Dr. Caroline McAfee, who spent many, many years studying uh, Scottish folklore. And we're going to spend today, you've written many papers and you've thought a lot about it. And we're going to, it's sort of related to the Irish question, which is up in the news again. Um, but it's got a more universal uh uh, and more universal relevance, and which is, I mean, it's this universal thing. We here we are broadcasting globally to people from many different nations, um, and we managed having a dialogue and talking to people from different cultures and so on. At the same time, and this is universal, whatever culture you're from, you always want to be at home. I mean, you want to be at home with, you want to preserve that home, and you want to keep your habits, and you don't want to have to explain everything, and you want to be preserved from attack not just uh, physical attack, but also kind of verbal attack, you could say. Now, at the same time, we want to be able to criticize other cultures um, because that's the essence of free speech. Could you tell us a little bit, of, can you talk us through some of the dilemmas? I mean, you were reciting in our pre-interview the Frank Ferrady paper on somewheres and nowheres and home uh, freedom versus uh, the right to, to have your home. Tell us about your Frank Ferrady paper that you were just reading. Hello. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was very interested in uh, in what he was saying. Uh, he was commenting on the sort of um, about face that the left have made on the topic of diversity, because in the past, uh, as embodied in the French Revolution, uh, the left were very much for uniformity, uh, and I didn't actually know this about the French Revolution, the extent to which they wanted to do away with any sort of um, regional uh, cultural um, differences. Uh, I mean, I was aware that they invented the metric system, uh, which should never be forgiven or forgotten, uh, but uh, it was the German romantics who were sort of the, the opposition to uh, to that um, uniform uniformization. Uniform, <laughs> uh, so um, the, the talk, talking about German romantics um, reminded me of the uh, the concept of Heimat, uh, which is, is something like the feeling 
of being at home in a place, um, kind of uh, the familiar, unspoiled uh, landscape, um, being with people whose behaviour is predictable, uh, who have the same unspoken, uh, unarticulated, unconscious uh, assumptions that you also mm. make, where uh, you, the outcome of the response to your actions is predictable. Uh, I think uh, the Germans still have the Heimat concept, don't they? I mean, Helmut Kohl was talking about the Heimat. They didn't talk about nation, which is tainted in the case of Germany, but there's still a lot of provincialism and localism in Germany, isn't there? Anyway, c carry on. Yeah, so there's this conflict yes. between the two. Yes. Uh, uh, you, you're familiar with um, David Goodhart's book, The Road to Somewhere. Uh, I was quite surprised. Yeah, but he, tell us about he, it anyway. He, he, yeah, he, he never he never mentions Heimat, although there there's a very large overlap there with um you know his sort of idea of, of people who don't want to um have sudden changes disrupting a way of life that uh, that, that sometimes you know goes back a very long way, uh, whereas the well he has this sort of distinction which in many ways is more important than the left right distinction nowadays between somewheres and anywheres Indeed. as, as he calls yeah, yeah, yeah. people who want to stick to their roots <clears throat> and people who see themselves as citizens of the world and the thing i notice if people are talking about the book uh they tend to remember it as somewheres versus nowheres right of course, if, if you belong anywhere, then you do, in a way, belong nowhere. Exactly, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And so would yeah. you say the Brexit Brexiters are, are, are somewheres and the Remainers in the UK were anywheres? Yes, very much so, very much right. so. I think yeah, the metropolitan elite didn't realise the extent to which people do quite like the place that they live in, quite like to, to stay the same as it was. Uh, and, and just to have a sort of newsy angle uh, on, on our talk, um, presumably, I mean, Nor Northern Ireland, you know, which is this really divided community in, in the greater United Kingdom, where you have the Protestant population, which is about half, and then the Catholic population at half, then they, they look exactly the same. They have different religions. And to outsiders, it, they're, they're very, very strong attachment and, and dislike of each other and attachment to their way, even though it's actually quite similar. Can be mystifying, but can you? Are they? Would you say that they're both somewheres? Both these populations. Yes, I mean, I, I lived in Northern Ireland for a while. It was thirty years ago now, uh, and that is the very strange thing about it. That despite the conflict between the two communities, once you are inside either of those communities, um, you're somewhere very warm and friendly, where people all know each other. <clears throat> of course, that that, that has a, a negative effect sometimes in politics. Uh, I mean, I, I got the impression that um, if people wanted to get anything done, they had to sort of navigate a, a, a network of patronage, um, had to find the politician who was able to get the thing done and uh, go to them almost as a supplicant. Uh, and it also helped a lot if you were a member of the Masonic Lodge. Right. But, uh, Just a quick yeah. question and carry on. But did you get on as a Scot? I think you're Protestant. We, I haven't talked to you about that, but... Did you get on with both communities? Were you seen as a, a neutral outsider that didn't have to take sides? Well, I, I worked in a folk museum and uh, the the people that I, I, I knew were mostly folkies, uh, you know, right. the folk music. Uh, and that, that was one of the, the few um, sort of meeting grounds. Uh, they were a mixed bunch and that was right. quite unusual. Uh, right. But you, you're yeah. talking about the warmth anyway, and 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 the, and the clannishness. So there are a lot of positive sides once you're inside. But if you're the opposing side, then it's daggers drawn. So it's a funny sort of funny because we're supposed to live in a we associate globalization and liberalism, whatever, with some kind of uh, universal love. Or but here we have the, the the love within inside the community is almost predicated upon a hostility to the out other community. How does that? You know, how does that fit in with our sort of modern liberal understanding of the world? Well, uh, I, I, I don't know that I can really answer that. Uh, that's that's um, that's the, the 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 nature of, of as you say, clannishness. Um, you get the negative along with the positive. Uh, 
and the, the sort of communities that are arriving in uh, England and Scotland now, uh, you've, you've got people uh, living in parallel societies and they like it that way. Uh, so, you know, we should probably be understanding of the fact that the um, settled Indigenous communities also like it that way. They don't want things to change abruptly. They can accept gradual changes. Well, I, I'll talk to you uh, about that just a second. But I mean, because what's happening now in, in Northern Ireland is you've got a, a, the Sinn Féin, which is the nationalist party that wants unification with the rest of Ireland. He's now the new first minister and he's hoping for unification with Ireland. But this new Ireland is not the Catholic Ireland they dreamed of 20 or 30 years ago. It's a multicultural Ireland. How is that going to go, you wonder? You don't have to answer the question, but it seems to be almost a contradiction there. Um, but anyway, what, what the, the other thing that you were talking about was because um, conservatives, today's conservatives or libertarians or whatever say, well, you know, we like we like difference. We like that diversity. You know, we like traditions. And you were talking about uh, folk traditions in Scotland that are being revived through the song culture and uh, the the homelands debate in, uh, in Northern Ireland, which we'll talk to in a, in a moment. But at the same time, conservatives want that. Conservatives also believe in free speech. Okay, I believe in free speech, and that includes the right to criticize other things, other other cultures, and have debate, basically. But what this tell us about what this university culture is, where pe people being segmented into different racial categories, and don't want that racial category criticized because they say it's almost a kind of violence and so they're against free speech talk us through that debate for a bit you've kind of put me off my stoat uh, as we say in scotland it's not not really what i was um ah. was thinking um free speech and clannishness and liberalism uh, well, I mean, what what you what you have in the universities is cancel culture, and you've got people from different tribes, as it were, inside the university, and they're saying this kind of this was the, the second half of the Faraday article discussed these things. So you want to preserve diversity and respect for each other's cultures at universities. At the same time, as universities traditionally were about free speech and and not worrying about treading on people's toes. Uh, I, I think uh, Ferreira is, is is kind of stretching the idea of diversity in that article. Right. Um, the, the thing that I, I took out of it more was the other side of it that the left were very much for uniformity, and right. uh, they they are in favour of certain kinds of diversity, but they are mm. in a way still very much in favour of uniformity in terms right. of globalism. Um, mm. You know that the, there's only one human race, the family of man. Mm and so on uh but uh, then when it comes to uh you know practical politics um they uh, they they use i believe they just use um different marginal groups to advance an agenda uh whereas the diversity that uh, Fudiji was talking about uh in the past was the uh, organic diversity of um, traditional cultures, and again, there's there's positive and negative because um, so the, the going forward, sort of summarising what you want uh, in a future Britain of seventy five million people, it's summarising in, in a few sentences what you'd like as a lexicographer and a traditionalist. What's the best outcome? Um. The, uh, there's, there are a lot of aspects of the indigenous culture that are slipping away very rapidly. I mean, a lot of my work has been on, um, on dialects and dialects of Scotland. And the, the thing about language is that you have to have a linguistic community. It's not like, for instance, a style of fiddle playing uh, where, you know, you just need one person to learn that style of fiddle playing and then right. um, train some others, pass it on, and you still right. have it. But uh, right. there are other things that, you, in particular language, uh, where you lose it if you um, right. if you don't, it's no good just you know, having 
a few speakers who have nobody left to talk to. There's a right, story right. that was told about um, about Cornish. The right. the last speaker of Cornish uh, right. used to talk to his cat in Cornish. I mean, that's right. that, then you know when Cornish is revived, nobody actually knows how to pronounce it. They right. Just well, that's really interesting. We'd like to talk about that. Uh, we've got some uh, news headlines first. Thank you very much. This is TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. I have huge news. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Do it. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Harrowing audio has been released of the moment a 15-year-old Palestinian girl was shot and killed by Israeli forces while speaking on the phone with Red Crescent officials pleading for their help. An Australian man hospitalised with heart complications stemming from the COVID-19 vaccine has had a massive win in court. And the European Union's foreign policy chief has admitted complications stemming from the COVID-19 vaccine has had a massive win in court. And the European Union's foreign policy chief has admitted Western sanctions have failed to weaken Russia, with fighting only intensifying in Ukraine. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So, Caroline, you're a, a, an aficionado of traditional cultures in Britain and in Scotland. And um, I guess uh, some of these uh, cultures are in danger of fading out, but there's a kind of revival, isn't there, uh, in uh, in the homelands debate and in, in Scotland. Tell us a little bit about that, because Britain is becoming increasingly multicultural and, and uh, populated. What's going on? There, there, there are small successes when people care enough about something. Uh, and these, these can be very small things. It's one of the points that, that Goodhart makes in um, The Road to Somewhere. It's the little things that people care about. Uh, and uh, the, the, in Ireland, um, the, there was a campaign, which is a you know, limited amount of success, to retain what are called the townlands, not homelands, you're thinking of South Africa, townlands. Uh, these are, are very small geographical units, about 100 to 500 acres, I don't know what that is in hectares. Uh, and uh, these were used as part of an address. So, for instance, you would have McGrath's farm, Anacloy, that would be the address. But in 1972, the Royal Mail wanted to bring in uh, postcodes. Uh, and uh, they were discouraging people from using the townland names on their addresses. Of course, they couldn't stop people from adding the townland name to the address, though it quickly became evident that you had to use the postcode if you wanted your letters delivered promptly. Uh, but uh, the authorities, you know, officialdom uh, stopped using the townland names. And people were very upset about that. Uh, because the uh, that that is is the the link to the history of the place. Of course. So, um, the, the and both sides, both Protestants and Catholics, believed in the townlands concepts, right? Yes. That, that's where where does the debate stand yeah. now? Well, a certain amount of success. Uh, some, uh, I think, Fermanagh, the, the county Fermanagh, uh, officials there um, are still more inclined to use them in addresses. And they've sometimes appeared on new um, road signs in the countryside. But uh, whether whether or not they're, they're used depends very much on the will of uh, particular individuals in uh, official government bodies to use them. But uh, people, as you say, right across the um, the divide, uh, people did you know make it the public made it known that this was important to them, uh, and there's 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 a sort of you know an attachment to uh, to to history in Northern Ireland. There's a remarkable number of local history societies, for instance, with their journals. We have to almost finish now. I mean, you're obviously a Scottish. Um, tell us, are there similar uh, focal points for a return to sort of traditional culture in Scotland as to the townlands in Northern Ireland? Uh, is there a fight going on there? A fight that's being yes, won, perhaps? There's, 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 there's a campaign to retain the um, historical counties. And uh, there's a successful campaign to retain the names of the old regiments that the... Um, 
there are now battalions within a single regiment, the, the, sort of the Royal Regiment of Scotland, but uh, the, uh, there was a move to do away with the battalion names like the Black Watch and the Gordon Highlanders and so on, and just have numbers, uh, any French Revolution, uh, but uh, they, they have actually uh, kept the battalion names in Scotland, but not in England where they're just numbered. Wow. Well, well done, Scotland. So, well, thank you for that update of uh, the the revival of uh, British traditionality uh, in the, in far flung parts of the UK. Thank you very much, Dr. Caroline McAfee. This is TNT yeah. Radio. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. Uh, animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold. They're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent. Everywhere I could see was mud, just absolutely mud. You know, the country has been long for droughts so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution, and we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into the unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Uh, okay. And around the world, for any animal, in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution, one rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Pella Neuroth Taylor, live from Sweden on today's News Talk TNT. Right, we've got um, an interesting situation. Uh, we're talking to uh, Basil Valentine in the Middle East. Uh, I was quite worried that. Um, I, my feeling was that the uh, Americans would strike back immediately and succumb to the pressure. I think, obviously, uh, to give credit to the State Department, they're trying to assuage the hardliners at the same time as they do not try to escalate into regional war, which I think uh, no one wants, and especially not the Iranians, actually. And of course, the Iranians have got some things they can hit back through. They got they can close the state of these uh, the Straits of Hormuz, which would be the mother of all economic strikes against the West, and uh, which is already struggling uh, with uh, the effective closure of the Red Sea to the Houthis who are lobbing missiles and things at uh, Western tankers. And I think, uh, I don't think that the uh, Middle Eastern stance on uh, wanting, not wanting to escalate while at the same time worrying about their street, their public opinion. Uh, I think there's probably quite a lot going on to try and um, bring this to the conclusion. So the the, the talks between Hamas and Israel, uh, brokered by the Americans, actually does seem quite optimistic. There's, there's talks about uh, they had a meeting in Paris and uh, let's see, let's hope that the the peacemakers win out over the uh, warmongers. Although, of course, there's always a second order battles taking place, mental, psychological battles, threats of what you might do, uh, threats aimed at getting people to the negotiating table. So I, I guess that the, the sort of uh, the rumblings of uh, unhappiness in America could be, if you're benignly disposed towards the Americans, be seen as, as a way to get um, the to Iran to, to maybe withdraw support from uh, uh, their uh, activists in the region and uh, maybe uh, the, the threat of uh, bad things happening uh, can concentrate people's minds wonderfully. Um, but I think um, I was worried. I mean, I, I, I've uh, studied 9-11 and I mean, I my view is like most people who've read up a little bit was it, it seems incredible that um, it could be some uh, foreign actor, uh, not not the uh, just a terrorist who did it, but maybe some foreign intelligence agency that, that, who had the the buildings wired up for explosives. So when the planes crashed in, uh, they set off the explosives shortly afterwards. And we've got that famous Building Seven, which wasn't actually hit, but was right next door to the uh, towers one and two, and that fell without a plane flying into it. So I, I'm very well aware of all the, I wouldn't call it conspiracy theories, but all the alternative hypotheses that circulate on the anomalous bits of evidence. And I'm minded to think it, was a, it wasn't what we all think it is. And uh, some people have speculated that the destruction of the Twin Towers in 2001 was actually a false flag incident to get uh, the US to pile into the Middle East and help Israel 
prosecute a, a war of destruction against its enemies in that region. Now, if you believe that happened, and for instance, if you believe that the election of 2020 was stolen, uh, but again, possibly by foreign actors, because Trump hadn't yet started any wars uh, on behalf of its allies uh, in the Middle East or perhaps in Europe, then you have to be very aware or very worried that attacks on US troops in the region might not be everything they seem to be. I mean, we we have this, we have the false flag concept, which ought to be better known than it is. A false flag is when you pretend to be someone and you're actually someone else. And um, uh, a false flag would be, um, you, or, or rather you attack yourself. I mean, uh, we know that in uh, the, in Yugoslavia in the 1980s, 1990s, the Bosnians uh, had their own people at, uh, fired on, <clears throat> partly because uh, a big explosion in the marketplace could generate a Western intervention based on sort of a very emotional response. And the Bosnians might say, well, we've killed a few of our own people here, but it's all for the greater good of getting a Western and NATO intervention to, to defeat our enemies. Uh, another false flag incident, of course, was the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964, which got the US into the Vietnam War with uh, destruction of hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese lives and I think 50,000 Americans. And that was supposedly because North Vietnamese missile boats, I think it was, was um, uh, supposedly attacked uh, American ships. But now we are, uh, so we've got to be very aware that false flags do happen and they could happen to get the US into dangerous conflicts. And I worried about this attack of the Jordanians. Now, uh, on, on, the, on the American troops based in Jordan was such a false flag attack by the Israelis to get the Americans to commit to wider war. Let's hope that's not the case. But an expert that we've got on this topic is Pat Carlson, who was one of the chief lead producers of Al Jazeera. Uh, just a few years ago, and has wide knowledge of the region. Uh, per, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. So tell us, you are really well read up on the Middle East. You were a Baghdad bureau chief, I think, for Fox News, and then you were a chief producer at Al Jazeera in Qatar. And you followed the, these, this latest um, conflict post the October 7th very closely. Did you worry that the killings of the American troops in on the Jordan border was a, maybe a false flag to escalate? Well, I think you have to be very uh, clear about one set of facts, which is that nothing really makes sense in the Middle East if you just focus on borders on a map. There are loyalties and relationships across the borders that really make things happen. So, for example, I was based in Doha in Qatar, which ostensibly had a very bad relationship with both the Saudis and the Iranians for a long time. But many people in Qatar have Iranian blood, have family uh, across the straits, and have loyalties uh, with people in Iran. The same, t the same thing goes for Jordan. And what is happening now, I've been in touch with uh, sources of mine in Jordan. And one thing that is interesting about this particular area where this attack happened is that you have this um, training camp in that neighborhood where the United States and the Europeans ostensibly trained so-called uh, moderates to fight against Assad regime in, in Syria. But many of those people who were trained by the West and trained by the Americans ended up using their weapons and their skills to go over to ISIS. And so you never really know who you're actually dealing with. Just by, by just looking at a map, it's very hard to decipher what is actually happening mm. and what kind of forces is at play. So you have to keep that in mind. And I'm, mm. I'm very concerned that there is something behind this attack, which came so, uh, out of, not, not, not out, of, out of nowhere, but it seems like it makes a good deal of sense for a lot of people to focus on that now, rather than what's happening mm. in Gaza, for example, in Ukraine. Right. So uh, is what you're saying, I mean, we, I'm, um, I tell people who are not, uh, who read the mainstream media like they read the Bible, that words like moderate or right wing or far right, they're almost meaningless titles. They're attached there by sub-editors who want to orientate and nudge the viewer into the sort of preferred mainstream view of things. Um, when you call something Iran-backed, should we take that with a pinch of salt and examine what does, what does that mean? Is that what you're basically saying? 
Yes, uh, to some extent that's true. I mean, you can, you can look at what happened in Libya after uh, the Arab Spring in 2011. Um, and we were seeing how various groups suddenly started to revolt against uh, the Libyan leader Gaddafi. It wasn't really discussed much, but one of the sources of money and weapons uh, was the uh, alliance between the United States and Qatar. They were very deeply involved in uh, fanning the flames of the revolution in Libya, although ostensibly and on, in public, uh, the, the Qataris, of course, would say that, you know, we want a peaceful solution, we do not want violence, but if you really look at what happened there, you will see that everybody had various relationships and weapons came from all kinds of, of, of places in the Middle East. It's very difficult to pin people down there and say, okay, you are against the Iranians, you are for the Americans, you're for the Westerns, Westerners. There's a mm. lot of uh, games being played constantly. So anybody who says, this is what happened, these people are behind it, um, either mm. don't know what they're talking about or know a lot that uh, we don't mm. un quite understand. What you're sort of saying is that we, we, we require a totally different, we in the West, level of sophistication in understanding the Middle East. We, we want to pin black, black hats and white hats on people, good guys and bad guys, moderates and extremists. But is what you're saying is that these groupings are more numerous and their loyalties are more fluid and their game playing is much more sophisticated than we can think or fathom. Yes, and you also have to realize that people's loyalties are a result of all kinds of uh, calculations. Let, let's look at the situation in Gaza now. You have this allegation from the Israelis that a handful of uh, staff members of uh, the, the Palestinian aid organization, UNRWA, uh, were sympathizers or had ties with, with Hamas. Well, I have been to Gaza like five or six times. It's very difficult to find somebody who doesn't know someone who is connected to Hamas. And I just find it very strange that that line is coming out uh, just a few days after the International Court of Justice uh, concluded that uh, it's plausible that a genocide is taking place there. So if you mm. point a finger at people in Gaza, you have to be very careful before you, you have to understand mm. the kind of uh, area that they're maneuvering in before you start condemning mm. people left and right, I think. That, I mean, that um, attack on the UN Refugee Agency, uh, which earned much bigger headlines and much longer coverage in our mainstream media, the BBC ran with it uh, in a major way. It almost seemed like an Israeli pre-prepared talking point that they unleashed on their friends in the, in the Western media to drown out this, um, this IC International Court of Justice genocide case. Could you tell us a little bit about what the, what the ICJ is trying to do? Or what, what the next step in that um, case? Well, so the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which is a UN organization uh, of uh, lawyers and judges, rather, they concluded that there is plausible information, there's information enough that it's plausible that the Israelis are conducting genocide. So they have um, told that the Israelis that they have, by international law now, this is binding, they have to essentially stop the killing of Palestinians as a group. And they have uh, requested that the Israelis come back to them with a report on how they are doing uh, in, in a month. So it'll be interesting to see what the Israelis come up with in the, in the meantime. Uh, but so, yes, the Israelis are now, I think it's very clear that this is an Israeli campaign. Um, media yesterday was, confer was referring to a dossier. That's a pretty uh, remarkable word, isn't it? A dossier that exactly, was yeah. distributed to Very 2001, media. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And last time we dealt with the dossier, we found out after the fact that it was just made up. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was a 2003 dossier uh, about dodgy weapons of, mass, uh, weapons of mass destruction, which ended up with uh, the America's war on Iraq and untold death and destruction. But what do you think this dossier contains then? Or has it been made public yet? Or what's the story there? Well, don't forget the dossier uh, that alleged that Trump was run by the by the Russians. <laughs> That's the exactly, dossier. Exactly. Yeah. Thinking of course. About. Um, oh, right. Yeah. 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 The, doss yeah. the dossier apparently have names of individuals again in Gaza that had ties with Hamas and that were employed right. by the UN 
relief agency, UNRWA. And, but as right. I said, it's very difficult to find people in Gaza who do not have some sort of tie yeah. directly or indirectly with Hamas. Right. So right, you have right. to be very careful before you give any credence to that report. And in fact, it's, it's making a bad thing worse because UNRWA is a lifeline for many people in uh, the, and many Palestinians, isn't it? I mean, it's the main provider of food aid and, uh, and water and things exactly. like that. So the West exactly. is kind of cutting this lifeline off. I mean, it incre- seems incredibly spiteful just because they want to de- downgrade the UN's importance at a time when the UN might be the forum or the next venue for a condemnation of Israel and by proxy by the West as well. What, what's going to happen then in New York in a few weeks' time, do you know? Well, I mean, it's, it's remarkable that uh, just a few days after the International Court of Justice ruled that Israel has to uh, allow aid into Gaza, the Israelis are trying to do the, the exact opposite. And what's really shocking yeah. is that uh, several countries in Europe, within the EU and the United States and, and the, the UK, have agreed now to, to, to freeze their contributions to this, to this agency, uh, as right. if the people right. over there don't have enough problems. Uh, what's yeah, going to yeah, happen right. next is the, the judges in The Hague will, should be receiving a report back from the Israelis in less than a month now. And uh, at that point, the South Africans will be given that document and can come in with their comments. And, uh, but I think in the meantime, we can just watch with our own eyes to see the extent to which the Israelis are following, following the rules-based world order, as it were. Yeah, right. So, because the, the rules-based, I mean, the, the International Court of Justice is an organization which is very kosher. I mean, it's very legal, very, very respected. It's senior to the International Criminal Court, which indicted Putin. And Israel has signed up to it. Everyone has signed up to it. You can't really defy it. Or can you? I mean, this is why when we have, if, if South Africa goes to the UN, as I understand it, if Israel is deemed not to have complied, then it'll be a showdown because, I mean, of course, the BRICS nations and Russia and China will be on the side of what they say is international law, that is the ICG, ICJ condemnation of Israel. And the question is what the Americans are going to do if they're going to carry on protecting Israel. I mean, I think that the BRICS nations have, have set a trap for the US and UK. And I, I think that great diplomatic minds in London and Washington trying to figure out what the hell to do. What are your thoughts? Well, yes, I uh, mean, I think that- yeah, Carlson, could you just summarize in, the, in, the, in 30 seconds what your thoughts, the, what, what your beliefs are for the next step of what's gonna happen in, in New York uh, with this UN case? There will be a clear showdown uh, within the international system in my prediction in the next 30 days. Uh, people will go, the, South Africa and other countries will probably go to the UN Security Council or the General Assembly for a condemnation of Israel and the U.S. will be forced to, to, to decide whether they believe in international law or not. And that's going to be a big, uh, a big issue. Thank you, Per Cosson. This is TNT Radio.